You're listening to the Talk Editions podcast, episode number two. Oh my god, no. Okay, first question. Why do I hate celery but love? Do you hate celery? No, I like celery. Oh, okay. Music is that one that sounds like it's energy transference. Music is bizarre. What a bizarre thing. <laughs> I am Ellery Trafford, percussionist of talk. And I'm Madison Greenstone, the clarinetist of talk. here today with Brandon Lopez, a prolific bass player, improviser, and composer based in New York City. Hey. Welcome. How's it going? going? Hello. Just, uh, I didn't realize that AKG was made in, in Austria. Are we rolling right now? Are we recording? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so Brandon, <laughs> you have written a piece for talk this yes. season, which we're really happy about. Thank you for that. It's called Empty Church of Plenty. Empty. Indoor Church of, Church of Plenty. Tell us a little bit about your process of writing the piece. Well, I mean, the process is, is still ongoing because I need to meet with you guys to actually discuss what, uh, to see what's going to happen. Um, there's time limits and events and certain things that are somewhat specific, but most of that's going to be derived from the way that we interact with each other and how we utilize certain concepts. So, like, a big part of your process is, like, on the ground, like, in real-time interaction with the performers you're working with. Yes. Yeah. How much generally changes from, like, what you present to people then, like, when you start to meet with them? Like, how flexible does it become? It becomes super flexible, which I, I like a lot because it keeps me interested. It's like a piece can change and change and change it from, from every single performance. I think it's it's similar to... I mean, I think that even with, with composed pieces, I feel like that, that happens a lot. Ensembles can play the same piece for a long period of time, and each performance is quite different. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, that's totally true. Yeah. yeah. The thing evolves over time. Yeah. And sometimes just from depending on the space, what the space sounds like, what the audience is like, how you're feeling. It's a constant reactivity yeah. to like all the different contingencies of the performance situation. Yeah. And I like to play with that. That's kind of your... Um, your mindset for improvising too, isn't it? Like sort of reactivity? No. Um, well, y- yes and no. Actually, a lot of, I guess, what I've been working on recently with improvising is, is not being so reactive to, to other players. Being aware, having like an awareness of what's going on. Because I think that I do have a, a tendency to be very reactive. And I think that's kind of a, uh, it's a strength of what I do in, in what I do. Like being so quick to react and it's also a, a kind of it's also a weakness i think i kind of have to uh mild sounds um <laughs> <laughs> well why why would you call that a weakness well if if you're if you're constantly reacting to other stimulus how are you going to present an idea that's actually your own so I, a lot of that a lot of what i've been working on has been kind of stating an idea and if somebody comes in with a different idea, just having those two things meet, hopefully being able to, you know, make some sort of, make some go of that. So it's kind mm. of like a contrapuntal way of thinking of improvisation 
and also like kind of deeply ethical. It's like yes. there are these two concurrent ideas that might be in some ways incommensurable, but they do exist in the same space and they can they can find concordance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you're when you're practicing this sort of content generation, idea generation, what's your process like of fastening ideas and holding on to them and developing them? I just state an idea whether it's whether I think it's it's good or not. I just kind of do something and then I deal with sculpting that into something that I think is uh, aesthetically viable for me. Sometimes the ideas are bad. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and seriously. you just have to commit to them. Yeah, and you have to. And you have to find a way to actually make that fit and, and, and work it. And I mean, a lot of the times what you th- think might be bad in real time or what you think might be not a smart decision is actually quite quite the opposite. So there's a certain amount of like ignoring the critical brain, but at the same time using that to, it's like this very weird uh, balance that you have to, to do. Do you think this balancing act is going to play into the piece that yes, talk will play? Yes, of course. Because I mean, you guys are going to be improvising. So we're all going to be doing that. <laughs> we're all going to be dealing with that, which is kind of exciting. I mean, you know, sometimes it feels awful and the work is actually great. Sometimes it feels great and the work is actually awful. Hmm. Sometimes it feels great and the work is great. Sometimes it feels awful and the work is awful. How much of that comes down to the personnel you're working with? Doesn't. I mean, I guess when you have trust in like in players, it becomes easier to be more comfortable and, and let certain things flow, happen, whatever. But for me, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily matter. I've played with uh, people who I trust and work with like consistently, and and I've been irate with them. You know, during and after a performance, it's just an off day. From yeah, maybe for me, you know, it's and it's often the case that I'll listen back, maybe like three or four months, and be like, "This is actually a very good." Set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had this that is, experience as well. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Yeah, so you can't really trust your your initial emotions. I think good people can have bad ideas. Bad yeah. I- bad people can have good ideas. Yep. Bad people can have great ideas. I mean, what? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes good people have good ideas that end up being bad ideas yeah so i guess in this case like how do we all take like <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly let's get out of that <laughs> let's not really talk about politics <laughs> yeah. yeah um how do we all in that case like take accountability in this situation where we're all going to be working together and like bringing our own personal practices and personal ideas to the table and like have the trust to sort of like say like no this isn't what i'm perceiving this isn't what i'm feeling is the right vibe but then have this sort of trust within the group i just try to maintain um whatever level of objectivity i I possibly can when approaching something during the performance and afterwards which can be tough sometimes you're like fuck i don't know if that felt that did not feel good but you still have to just kind of maintain some sort of zen about it what's your litmus of objectivity like you say objectivity but that's like a super loaded word in like Mm -hmm. improvisation and like musical interpretation art in general like what yeah does mean? Or uh, i guess it's like it's also like a historical thing because objectivity like refers outwards to like context and to like you know your own history as a musician and like the history of your collaborators i guess when i when i refer to objectivity i'm actually just talking about not indulging uh whatever feelings i'm having after a performance or during a performance in order for the work to just kind of get finished done and also at the same time you know preserve relationships keep my mouth shut because i don't know i don't know sometimes i'm just sometimes you're just mad yeah and you can't just kind yeah of... you can't just be mad at people for no reason no even if you're in a mad mood yeah 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 
I mean, you, I mean, sometimes it feels like you're mad at somebody for a, a particular reason, and it's really just kind of your own. You're mad at your haircut or something. I don't, yeah. Anyway, um, like, yeah, object, yeah, objectivity is what a, what a loaded word. How could you actually be objective? How could I be? I, I'm not. But it's more um, and just maintaining some sort of level of coolness about the situation and distance from the situation, even if you're, you know, very, very much a part of it. That seems to be like a structuring part of like the performance in the piece, this like sharing of ideas wherein like there is some sort of like objective thing to work off that like decides like this happens at this amount of time and yeah. Like a score is not necessarily explicit. It's not, so it's not necessarily the piece of music either. Yeah, there's so much That's that happens true. between looking at a printed page and like the sounds that come out of it. There's this really great, um, it's not actually a great documentary, it's a terrible documentary, but uh, it's terribly shot. Uh, on Cecil Taylor, it's like it's terribly shot. It's like very grainy, and but he has he's this is really great segment where he's kind of defending improvisation as like a as an art form. And he, he makes a great point about or all the all the energy that you use interpreting a symbol on a page can actually be put into creativity. Like why do you need the page? You know, like the music is not the page. The music is actually the person performing that. It could spend less energy interpreting what's on a page if you just realize that it's a fucking symbol and not music I don't know it's, it's really funny mm -hmm. not that I mean I'm, I'm not you know not one's not better than the other but I fight against that so he's, he's a little more militant about it so Empty Church of Plenty what's that title about I think that there's a lot to unpack in those four words well I'm not going to unpack that if that's alright I'd rather have the, the, the person listening and, and you guys and myself unpack that what it means to me, it's I'm not really sure. It's just a name. Okay. It's just the name of a piece. It's like how does how does a, a title relate to a piece of you know wordless music? Music's abstract. It's not. There's no narrative. Right. I I don't really remember the impetus for even naming the thing. So. What I like about the title though is that it like has empty church of plenty. Like for me, evokes this massive potential, something becoming like filled up or something becoming plentiful and active and energetic like in a vessel that like energy flows through and then leaves yeah totally it's like a way of framing time even like what you gave us as like a score it's like instructions about like how to shape time and how to listen to each other in passing through this set amount of time and so that becomes a scaffold for like energy to pass through and leave and like transfer on. Cool. <laughs> I don't know. This is way that's, cooler that's than like I. That's like my crazy <laughs> interpretation. I know. That's great. I'm, I'm yeah. into that. I don't know. I feel like these sort of text scores provide an outline or provide a scaffolding. Anything can hang off of it. And like you try and see like the weight of the idea like hanging on the scaffolding, like whether it's going to break or whether it's going to become an enormous monument that then burns like most churches. Everything crumbles to dust. Huh. I like churches. They're pretty amazing. I think they're creepy as fuck. Yeah, they're, they're, they're super awful at the same time. Yeah. I have vivid memories of being a child, like going to church with my grandmother. Catholic? Freaking. Right? Oh, yes. Freaking, freaking the fuck. Really? <laughs> All the imagery and like the stained glass windows, yeah. these like beautifully opulent and really well-crafted paned windows just depicting some of the most violent, weird stuff. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's great. They're strange places. So, so obviously the talk ensemble, we're, we're used to working with written music and all that. Uh, are you changing your process of like composition or 
music making in general to work with us as opposed to like no other more no. established improvisers no um well generally if i'm working with like established improvisers like we're just kind of established improv what, what does that mean but people who who mostly improvise and i could just kind of go into a situation and do it just i'm taking a little bit more this i have got a little bit more agency i guess in how things go which is exciting and also scary because i don't like i don't like necessarily being in charge of i mean i have a natural uh i like being in charge but i like to not indulge that but you haven't written yourself into this piece i have yeah yeah which is gonna be really fun <laughs> don't get me wrong <laughs> But, it, but is that also some kind, some part of control that you can sort of like be part of the action? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a way that I think I can, I'll be able to dictate certain things through uh, orally, which I, I prefer rather than writing things down. I mean, I, I guess I, I sat around like, like you know, thinking of ways of notating like certain ideas, and you know, it's all just kind of, it's always too specific. Hmm. You'd rather just be in the moment and be able to show it. I want to know. I want to know. I want to be able to understand y- the way that you guys, every individual's process and practice. And I want to. I want to use that rather than you know uh, dictate my process to, to to you guys. If that makes any sense. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It also gives. It also gives the players like you know some some ownership of the music, um, which I think is in, in all cases with with any any music i mean the performers are at least 60 percent more more so owners of the music than the composers themselves that's interesting for me personally that's how i usually feel about even the most complex specifically notated music it's all kind of graphic notation and sort of suggestions and it's all up to me i respect composition i respect composers but (laughs) but personally it's closer to like 80 20 very much on me i mean even think about like the the possibilities the, poss- the possible differences of, in performance practice with like something like Beethoven or Bach or Mozart, what did you know Beethoven actually sound like during his time, as opposed to what it sounds like now? All these Baroque music people, there's a huge improvisational aspect to Figured it. Figured doing the make-em-ups, that's... Yeah, it was just like part of the musical making and the musical culture that like you would improvise and that like you had a kind of like artistic autonomy hmm. that took whatever was written down as an impetus to like show one's own like subjective spirit yeah and one's own virtuosity as well it's like also like how a part of of writing music down the impetus for writing music down was to be able to share music with multiple like you didn't have recording technology you make money yeah (laughs) Yeah, like to publish it and like get the rights and this like idea of reproducibility yeah now we have these wonderful microphones and recording technology (laughs) and the internet you can actually record improvisation and it exists in record without having to uh, notate it but then it's like isn't it also part of a lot of improvisers practice to transcribe solos of people who they've really admired or like want to learn from i most certainly did a lot of replication of certain players that i um admired but as far as um transcribing work like notating it and there's not a lot of that that I did and I'm sure that there are plenty of improvisers who, who are not coming at it from that perspective yeah what's a yeah. so who are some of these people that you were trying to replicate like who are your your influences, are my influences? oh yeah. god there's too many to list top three top three top five top seven. five top seven, seven. how much, how much um, time do uh, well I, I mean I'm, I, I try to I try to just be to maintain a certain openness to ideas whether they be from Western music, jazz, classical, 
pop music or you know musics from around the world oh god how do i i think it's important as a composer or a musician or an improviser to have like open ears just to be able to listen to anything well there's i mean there's something to be learned from like every situation right yeah. Like, even the most bass, simplest pop music. I, I went to a Fish concert once. You son of a bitch. It was really terrible. But, I mean, I definitely got something from it, as mm-hmm. much as I didn't like the music. Was there anything, like, in your... Well, I, I don't want to say musical upbringing, because the way you were talking makes me think that, like, the upbringing is constant. Like, it's always happening, the learning. But was there a time when you, like, heard something and it just, like, completely blew your mind? Oh, yeah. Um... I went, my, my aunt used to sneak me into like jazz clubs when I was a kid, and uh, I saw Ray Barreto, who was a percussionist, at the Blue Note on like a Wednesday. There's like maybe 30 people there. This is like six months before he died. He was on an oxygen machine. Oh my God. Oh. Like, yeah, in between like playing, you just like put a mask over his face. Wow. That was my first experience with like live jazz and I was blown away by like just the the virtuosity and also like the the timbres and the sounds and the interactions that were happening and it just like really blew my mind but I I feel like I'm consistently I'll find something consistently that that consistently brings up that 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 initial feeling of like um yeah there's so much to listen to discover all the time I still listen to St. John's Passion the other other day oh yeah awesome amazing as much as i don't want to like bach it's a good it's just kind of very very good music it's like obsession with like reason and and logic i guess he wasn't i don't know if that's actually it but like it's something that i want to i don't want to like but but there are these kind of like real tangible like musical compositional technologies the fugue you know or like canons or whatever that like made sure like a certain amount of things happened in time and that were like generative of material and generative of time so it's like very, it's like very akin to like mathematics in a way. Thinking about that in a sort of abstracted way, it's like, oh, like what are my own creative technologies like while playing that like makes this idea into like 20 minutes of music? I feel like there's a lot to be learned from that, you know? Like yes. Bach has something to offer. To, yes. yes. Like across discipline. Yeah, he really knows how to um, milk a lot of material out of very little material. Do you have any like recommendations besides the St. John's Passion that you've been listening to? I've been listening to a lot of uh, solo Cecil Taylor concerts. That's 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 pretty amazing. Pretty amazing music. I listen to a lot of solo music. Anner Bilsma, his his uh, recordings oh, yeah. of yeah the Bach Cello Suites, yeah. super good. I don't like anything else he does. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really terrible. Like um, no, but those are exquisite. I know yeah. it's 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 insane. I mean, there's no. There's no other uh, cellist I want to hear after that. I've been listening to a lot of Renaissance music too, Renaissance and, and, and early Baroque music, or earlier Baroque music. Frescobaldi is mm. really interesting. Um, kind of late Baroque music, Scarlatti. There's a really, really great recordings by Pierre Hontai. I don't know how to actually pronounce this last name. He's a French um, harp, harpsichord player. His recordings of Scarlatti are really, really, really good. Um, what, what are some you know, some other art forms you enjoy? Like books? In the movies? I, I rarely <laughs> read books now. I like reading poetry a lot. Just something I don't really want to admit. What <laughs> poets not? do you like? Uh, or gonna, what writers? I'm not going to say. Writers? Oh, God, like any, like any, you know, 
any person who likes nihilistic intellectual endeavors, it's like Beckett is, is really big. It's kind of hard to read stuff after that, I think. I like his poetry a lot, a lot, especially the later works. The language becomes more and more reduced. I like that stuff a lot. Um, and I read a lot of articles, short articles. I like, I like visual art a lot. It's more direct. I could sit there and stare at it, you know. But I mean, books, books are difficult for me because now you can just watch a, you know, a movie or a documentary, and that's like so much more passive. And I just sit there and, and experience it over a certain amount of time. Yeah. Just being funneled into your face. Yeah, I love film. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I hate film, but I. Uh, <laughs> you hate it because you love it. Or? Pretty much, yeah. I've been. I like uh, Mikhail Hanukkah a lot. Rewatched um, Code Unknown the other night. It's one of the best movies I've seen on racism and xenophobia. And it's done by an Austrian white guy. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, I, he does a really great job of being, um, of not giving you any answers, not providing you anything other than, uh, it's not didactic at all, which is nice. I feel like most film is like, I guess a parasite recently. And uh, I hated it. Oh, really? Yeah, I hated it. I Why hated it. Uh, there's some like very obvious like problems with like class. Like it's like that that movie's made to be watched by like a like if you experience poverty the way that it was it's being portrayed in that film, you wouldn't want to watch a film like that about poverty. It was very didactic. Like it it it, it told you what to think about the situation. And it's like I don't I don't want I don't like that. It's true. There yeah, are some it's too manipulative. The film where it's just yeah. like very explicitly stating the purpose of the film. Yeah, well, it's which it's, takes you out of the actual artistic experience of it. Oh, it's just manipulative. Mm. Film is like this. Uh, it's a. It's very constraining. You you enter a room, they close the door. You're sitting inside of a seat, staring at a screen, and somebody's giving you information. It's a very precious space to be in. Film film can be incredibly manipulative, and it is, especially like U.S. films. But it's like you know, film. I like, I like film. I like music. <laughs> really? I don't think we've talked about that yet. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really good. I was reading this um, Helmet Lockenmann thing on No No. It's super good. This is, but there's this one thing. He says this mutual process of, of estrangement had less to do with No No's because No No was was he's being excluded from like um, the other composers because he declared communist beliefs. But there's something that's really. Uh, this mutual process of estrangement had less to do with Nona's declared communist beliefs. Forgivable in a naive artist who uh, would then be expected to conjure up in concert halls and theaters pleasant ideals from the romantic folkloric picture book world of anti-fascist resistance. It was only when Nono insisted on identifying potential sources of fascism in capitalist post-war society, not least in the dominant political culture of West Germany, that these activities started to cause offense. He was marginalized within that. Right, because like his musical practice was all about critique, or like largely about political critique. And same with Lachemann. Yeah. 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 My God. Do you find your music to be political? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I think so actually. Yeah. yeah. How so? I, it's not outwardly political. Like I'm not I'm not making. Um, well, I like to. I like to be in situations where uh, every player has equal ownership of the music, of what's being created. 
I think that there there is an idea that the composer is the highest intellectual seat, you know, or the highest seat as far as music making goes. Well, do you agree with that statement? No, I don't. I don't agree with it at all. What I found is that some of the the some of the most in- intellectually stimulating music I've listened to is, is improvised music, where there are uh, players with no. There's no scores. There's no scores in front of them. They're not trying to to play uh, pieces. The pieces are not owned by anybody. The aesthetic is not owned by just one particular individual. It's a group of players coming together to create uh, something. And sometimes not just a group of players, but a community of players that come together to create like a, a particular aesthetic. And that music has challenged my, me as a listener and as someone who thinks about music, what music is, in ways that I can't, in ways that I, I am still figuring out. And also just the implications, like the political implications of that, of that kind of, um, the ethical implications of... of well, I kind of see what, what is that? some like um, comparisons there. Like what you're talking about is sort of, it's very communal. You know, kind of like... It's, it's very, very communal. Rule of the people. In that in that sense, yeah. whereas and like it's also very working class. I mean, jazz is jazz is, is super uh, was initially very working class music. It was made for made for bars. Like you're getting paid, you know, to work. You're you're basically playing instead of a bar to bring people in to dance or listen to music, whatever. It's not. It wasn't pretentious at all. As a way of like codifying a community, like a community feel or. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that was the intention, or the initial intention. It was just like a place to work, but all of a sudden, this this super complex music, you know, rose from a you know a marginalized working class. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. People who weren't necessarily given access to information, they still created this very complex and beautiful music that was you know that relied on community and relied on relied on on not just individuals. And I mean, imp- improvised music—it's it's pretty, pretty amazing. I think, in that way, because if you have access to an instrument or access to anything that that m- makes sound, I mean, you can you can develop a you know a, a way to make music from that. You don't need to go through the rigmarole of, of like you know education or an educational system, or, or you don't need the access to types of information that are generally codified for and and protected by these wealthy institutions for a specific group of people um yeah i don't know i think i think that's that's an interesting aspect of improvised music and it's like it's helped me deal with like my own you know slowly peeling away my own capitalist Mm. you know uh brainwashing so it Mm. seems like what you were just talking about is a way like your musical practice like embodies a particular politics but do you do you find your like your musical practice like responding to politics in a particular way, or like responding to political situations? I mean, y- yes, um, consciously and and unconsciously, and I think mostly un- unconsciously. I, I've I've spent a lot of time questioning my own my own beliefs and my my background like where i'm actually from like what i'm what i'm actually a part of as opposed to what i'm striving to be a part of and why i feel a need to to i felt a pressure to this is complicated 
for like I come from a pretty working class family that doesn't want to be working class, you know. And um, in spite of my family's background, they adhere to these like a very American capitalist ideals, which are um, destructive. I think they're they're not, you know, it's not making them any happier. You know, it's not making their lives any better. You know? And I think there's certain restrictions that the community that I'm from has to deal with. Sorry, where where mm. are you from? I'm I don't from know New where Jersey. you're from. You're from New Jersey. <laughs> my parents my parents are okay. Puerto Rican. And okay. I, I grew up and I I came out a little bit darker than, you know, my, my mother's white and my father's not so white. And I came out a bit darker and I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, like working class neighborhood. And there's certain restrictions that you have to face if you if you look a certain way in the society. So how much that of that has decided the outcome of my music? Probably a lot. Yeah, it gives a lot to think about. Yeah, it's a lot to chew on. Mm. You know, it's a lot to chew on. I mean, it's great. The, the, I mean, I, I think, I feel like, like the, our generation of musicians is, is, is more active, actively, we're more actively engaging each other from like engaging different disciplines. Mm. Kind of, and I think that's really, that's really helpful, really interesting. It's all just becoming one. (laughs) (laughs) What would you do with your life if you weren't a musician? I'd be a cook. Yeah? Oh, yeah. All right. Absolutely. What kind of cook? Wine cook? I would want to be a chef. Yeah. I'd want to be like a head chef or like head cook. What kind of food? I don't know. I don't think it would matter. But the idea of showing up to like one place to perform one one function for an absurd amount of time. Like there's so much work that goes into cooking. It's like you get you get there, you prep everything, and then you're there till three three a.m. You know, and you do the same thing over and over. <laughs> there's something that appeals to me in that. It's very, in a way, very militant. Um, well, if you're the head chef, you get to kind of you know boss all those other people around. That's cool. Peace out at six o'clock. Be like, all right, you guys I, got I this. See, like, I, I don't think I would do that. Really? Yeah, I'm not the type of person that would that would. You know, if, if, if I'm devoted to doing something, to performing an action, I'm just going, I, I need to be part of the process. I'm not just going to check out. That's just something I can't do. It's either on or off, you know, just how it is. And I feel like that, that lifestyle would probably suit me best. And it also is providing this very simple function. I mean, you're just feeding, you're feeding people. Mm-hmm. There is something that's aesthetic about it. There is, there is uh, taste involved, you know. You have to develop a palate. You have to, you know, <laughs> yep. I like that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of, it can be unpretentious. I mean, f- being a chef is pretty, f- can be pretty fucking pretentious. You know, especially <laughs> I was going to say like, taste is like too, it's double-sided because you have like the taste, like the taste of things, but then you have like taste. It's like a yeah, no, kind no, of no, cultural mark. It's all know. about the taste of things. I'm more about the taste of things than the actual like taste, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I like that. I think there's certain things about being from like a worker's background too that that I feel like that's programmed in my brain to just want to just you know throw my body at something until mm. until it doesn't work anymore. Something you like to like like working with your hands kind of thing. I love working with my hands. Yeah, you're not gonna like work in finance like sitting in the computer analyzing. No, shit. no, no. It doesn't make that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it seems so. Uh, yeah, it seems like so, so alien. But also, like, this is something so elemental, you know, it's like feeding people and eating is like essential. It totally is. You know, like, and it's like music is elemental in the same way. It's like it's energy transference. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a sort of like indescribable. That's bizarre. Music is bizarre. 
What a bizarre thing. Because it seems like we don't... Like food, you need. You need food to survive. And music is not something that doesn't necessarily seem essential, but it, it, somehow it is. It's like it exists in every single culture. And people, you know, somehow show up to concerts. There's something, there's something essential about it, but you can't, you can't really put your finger on what, what that is. Food, you can't. Food, there's like a, there's a very yeah, there's definitive, a right? I don't know. I mean, I think taste buds are the same as yours. It's like, I have no idea why I like this instead of that. Yeah, I mean, for sure, actually. I mean, yeah, I guess there's, there's right, there's like the basic nourishment, like I need these things. But like, why this kind of food as opposed to that kind of food? Why do I hate celery but love? Do you hate celery? No, I like celery. But it's, but it's actually, amongst people that I talk to, everybody seems to hate celery. But I don't understand. I love celery. See? Yeah. Do you like celery? You this is, we're getting off. <laughs> no, this is great. I don't know. You're not into celery. Well. It's fine. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's fine. It's not something I go out of my way to eat. I like it with peanut butter. Peanut butter is like a, as a vessel for peanut butter. I like celery. Uh, Chopped up in soup. Yeah, maybe not whatever. celery salt. That's uh, that's for not my that's thing. For fools. Yeah, ta- <laughs> taste is is that's like a whole other thing. For my relatively brief experience of like being a chef and working in restaurants and stuff like that, there's a big class element to it too. There are certain flavors that not everybody has the access to. Oh yeah, I mean. They're, mm. they're, yeah. That's that's bullshit, I think. Mm. What's interesting about high-class dining in the in the United States is that it's I guess it was a, a initially European dining, like French French style, which I don't think was necessarily high-class dining. It was just the way that they ate and the way that they presented certain foods. It's the same thing with the classical music. The way, why is classical music funded so much in the in the States or is seen as this high-class thing? It's because it's from Europe. It's not quite like that over there either. No, it's every day for them. Yeah, it's just what they do. But I mean, I don't know. <coughs> like high class dining, that shit's bullshit. Oh, it's high, the whole idea of high high class is bullshit. I went to to the the, the MoMA like artist party. Fuck that. I mean, because <laughs> yeah, I mean, MoMA is before it was seemed like an interesting museum. It seemed a little bit more personal, and they they expanded everything. Bank of America took charge of mm. renovating the space, and it's it's awful. And I was surrounded by by high class society people essentially they don't have any taste mm. even though they have access to you know the time to, to actually take in aesthetic things it's like that do they have better taste than people who are not afforded that time it's not it's not the case no just more expensive tastes yeah it's it's purely i don't know it's a, such a weird facade i saw david tudor's rainforest yesterday at the moma oh, yeah, even though like the moma is like you know but I really liked David Tudor, and this was like an exalting experience. Like all the little kids loved it. They like wanted to run up and like touch the objects, and like the museum guards are going crazy because they're like, "You can't touch the, you can't touch the installation." But like it was originally conceived so you could like Tudor, I guess, originally presented it It was supposed to be like really interactive, where you could like physically impede the objects from resonating and like really engage with it in this tactile way. The kids should be able to touch it. Uh, yeah, I know, but totally. it's like, <laughs> it's the MoMA. You know? Actually, I think this is another thing I saw in MoMA. I saw a Yoko Ono retrospective, and her work is mm. all meant to be touched, right? Like, a lot of it's super interactive, but they had everything fucking roped off. And I was yes. like, what the hell? Well, it's because somebody... So counter, like, so, that's the opposite. Well, somebody, somebody's paid for it. Someone owns that work. So there's like this... I, I remember I saw a Yoko Ono exhibit at the MoMA, like, 
six years ago or something and mm-hmm. there was the performance piece like scream to the wind scream to the wall scream to the earth and like they had a microphone in the middle of the foyer that you could go up and like yell into and my friend Morgan and I went up and like both did it together and the museum guard was like only one person can yell at a time you're gonna police like my experience or like our I mean, experience of this that much well okay <laughs> I can imagine being a security guard at the MoMA and then hearing people scream all day is not yeah. necessarily like I wouldn't want to be I know, a sec- I, I wouldn't want to be a security guard at, at MoMA. Yeah. Okay. No one wants to um, do that. By saying like we need to play Would You Rather. We need to play Would You Rather. Would right you rather? Now. Let's do it. Do you know how this game works? Uh, I could. I no. You're you're presented with uh, an impossible situation of two options, which are equally mostly horrible. And you pick one and give us the reasons why. Cool. All right. Go for it. I'm into this. Yeah. Um, Who's first? <laughs> let's see. Uh, Do I get to ask? No. Uh. <laughs> Would you rather lose a hand or a foot? Foot. I work with my hands. Fair enough. I could. I would love to sit down for the rest of my life. <laughs> but how could you to like wheel the base? No, no, no. Well, well that's. The, well, then <laughs> there it goes. You get priority boarding. Like, I, I, if people wanted me, I could. Uh, to do st- like I would have like a I would totally take advantage of that. Uh, would you rather lose your middle finger or your index finger? Which one's the index? I think it's this the pointer. Pointer finger. Yeah. Pointer finger, or my middle finger. But which hand? So I think that makes a difference, Ooh. right? Yeah, you, you have to lose both of them in this, in this situation. Oh my god! <laughs> I would say my index because you could point. I mean, like it's. I could point with like pinky, whatever, but I mean, like, I don't want to lose the middle finger. <laughs> that's something I want to keep. That's right. That's like a. It's a very important part of uh, of of communicating on the northeast. Yeah, the audience doesn't can't see this, but he's giving us a demonstration. <laughs> Flipping of, the bird. Yeah. Cool. Got a good one. I no, I don't have a good one. <laughs> um, I really don't know. Cats or dogs? Is that a would you rather? No. It has to be a little bit more complex than that, I think. More specific. Yeah. Like, would you eat a cat or a dog? Like, would you rather? Eat? <laughs> would I rather eat a cat or a dog? Yeah. Can I pick both? Do I have to. <laughs> it's just a buffet, sure. I would eat both. There's too many cats for sure, and they're destroying the environment. So I would eat cat. Gotcha. Okay. Like uh, the cats that are in the uh, the outback. Yeah. That are like decimating like wild populations. I totally eat those. So this is not only a personal They're choice, big. but like a ethical public service. Ethical meat, <laughs> really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, cats are cool, but you know, they also like they serve. They, uh, yeah, I would eat them. I would eat them. Okay. Would you rather give up flying or give up driving for the rest of your life? Can I give up both? <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> I would give up both. I uh, flying. I would get rid of flying. I don't like flying. I like traveling. I don't like air travel. To be honest with you, yeah, I, I could deal with just public transportation. This sounds terrible, but public transportation for the rest of my life. If it was good, yeah. if I could not drive and not fly for the rest of my life, it would be awesome. I think, yeah, there's a big, a big part of like being like a, you know, like in the jazz world, I guess, and also for new music. You guys travel so much, but touring, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, touring is awful. It's like that's what you have to do to work is like get on an airplane and then fly seven hours and then be expected to play like either that night or the next day. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Not well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning how to deal with it. 
yeah, there's tons of occupational hazards and traveling is a, is a big part of it. And I, if I could not tour by car or train or plane, I would do it. Sailboats and cycling. Sailboats. I don't like boats make me sick. Okay. Cycling. Don't like, I don't like, I like bikes, but in the city, it scares me. So it's really just trains for you. Trains. Okay. Yeah. They seem safer for some reason. (laughs) So they're not, I don't think. Okay. I'm satisfied. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Brandon, is there anything else you have have coming up this this month, this year? December is a terribly busy month. Um, Not only do I have this premiere on the 14th, there's another premiere on the 16th at Roulette of two new works. Um, and before then, December 6th, I'm playing with, uh, H Prism, High, High Priest from Anti-Pop Consortium, is a mm. rapper, and Gerald Cleaver at, uh, Forward Festival, which is like a labels thing, and yeah, it's, it's just a busy, December is a busy month, and then the new year, uh, January, I believe that we're playing this piece again at another festival, and at the Friedman Gallery, and there's some other things as well. You've got some records out, right? Where can people hear you? Oh, they can hear me on my Bandcamp, which is uh, Never Not a Gravedigger, and I just released two solo things. One is live from uh, a live set from Club Mysterioso in Zurich from May of last year, and the other is uh, a studio recording, and that's entitled Violent Starts at the Tongue. And uh, there's a few more records coming out this year, a trio record with my trio, and then there's also hopefully a, a collaborative trio with myself, Gerald uh, Cleaver, and Brandon Seabrook. And uh, there's a new tape, there's a duo tape with the great Bill Nace, mm. guitarist from Philadelphia, well, lives in Philadelphia, he's another Jersey guy, he's a South Jersey guy, which is... Kind of, I'm from North Jersey. He's from South Jersey, so Uh-oh. somehow so. we get along, we seem to get along. But um, there's a Stone residency in the May in May. Mm. That oh, I cool. have two days. Nice. We'll be premiering some new stuff there as well. Right on. Right on. People, check out the links below, and we'll make sure that you have access to all of that stuff. Access. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Thanks it's for fun. having fun me. Talk. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Bye. Ciao. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 2, with Brandon Lopez. For links to Brandon's music and to other things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. The music you heard throughout this episode was from Brandon's recent solo album, Violent Starts at the Tongue. Talk will premiere his new piece, Empty and or Church of Plenty, on December 14th at 8 p.m. at St. Mary's Church in Harlem. That's on 126th Street, just east of Broadway, and the tickets are pay what you can. The concert will also feature a world premiere by Bethany Young. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so others can find us. This episode was recorded at the Domena Center, produced by Ellery Trafford and Charlotte Mundy, and edited by Charlotte Mundy. That's me. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening. It's fun to talk. It's fun to talk. No pun intended. Pun heavily intended. We're all about puns here.